I really am glad you're here. And uh, again, I always am aware that there are a lot of churches that you could be worshiping at. And uh, I'm hoping that you know by now that when you come to this church, you're going to hear the word of God. It's always going to be the word of God. We have a very, very short leash to the scriptures. And that is by design. Why else? What would you want to hear? I mean, I could give you anecdotes. I could give you stories. We could use a narrative approach and start out with a verse of scripture like a lot of churches do. And then just kind of tell political stories and moral stories. But that's not going to change your life. It is knowing the word of God. It's getting the word of God inside of you. And it's giving you a greater and greater hunger to know the word of God. Now, listen, I'm going to ask you a question. And I don't really, you don't need to respond to it. It's rhetorical. But my question is this. If you've been coming to this church for a while, are you gaining a greater confidence and a greater love for God's word? Because if you're not, then you're not quite getting what we're trying to present. And that is this. If you want to love Jesus, then know him through his word. And the more you know him through his word, the more you're going to love Jesus. And your life will change. It will transform. Francis Schaeffer, he, he impacted in his lifetime thousands, maybe even millions of people for Christ. But when he became a Christian, and I want you to hear this, when he became a Christian, his father was fully against it. He didn't want Francis to go to college to become a minister. But that moment came when Fran had to make a decision. So he went down to the very bottom of his house, down to the cellar of his house, and he began to weep before the Lord in fear and uncertainty, knowing that God was calling him to something that would severely disappoint his father. In tears, he takes a coin. I don't know if you've ever done this, but he flips it in the air, Asking God to show him what to do. Heads, I'll go into ministry despite God, my dad's desires. And it, the coin comes down, heads. You know what Francis Schaeffer, that great theologian, does? He flips the coin again. He's still weeping and he says, God, be patient with me. If it's tails this time, then I'll go to seminary and I'll learn to be a minister. And he flips a coin and it lands Tales. This great man of faith, Francis Schaeffer, pleads with God a third time. And he said, God, please, I don't want to make a mistake. He flips the coin saying, heads, then that's it. And it comes down heads. He goes upstairs, he goes to his father, and he tells his father what he must do. And his father, and I get this, his father stands up, storms out of the house, going to slam the door, but before he could slam the door, said, I'll only pay for your first half year at seminary. The door slams. It was years later that his father received salvation. Now, you got to hear this. this is the entire point of that story. Years later, his father receives salvation, puts his, his faith and his trust in Jesus Christ alone. And Francis Schaeffer, according to his wife, says that my husband can point back to that moment where he chose God over his father. Obedience over disobedience is what drew his father eventually to Christ.
Listen, the call of God must reign supreme in our lives if we are to be his disciples. And sometimes it's going to require of us more than we think it should, more than we're wanting to give. Yet we've got to learn to be all in. Surrendering everything to our Lord and Savior. Now listen, Jesus does it all. Did you hear that? Jesus does it all. He saves us. He provides for our salvation. We sang about it. That salvation is absolutely free. You cannot add anything to that salvation. Yet salvation, I hope you're hearing this, salvation will cost you your life. Did you hear that? The moment I said, the moment Tim Ackley said yes to the free offer of grace provided salvation, I could no longer say that I was my own. I was bought with a price. It was no longer me who lived. It is Christ who lives in me. I am his servant. He is my master, my Lord, and I will not live perfectly, and I do not live perfectly, yet there must be evidence in my life, fruit, that shows that Jesus has begun changing me. And more and more, I will love him with a love greater than I ever had before. Now, you're going to have to hear this because some of you, this is going to grate on you, this sermon. Do you want to be saved? Or do you believe you are saved? Well, if you could say yes to either one of those, then you are saying yes to being Christ's disciple. You cannot be saved and say no to being a disciple. It's all one and the same. And there is a cost that Jesus Christ will demand of you, and his grace that saved you will be the grace that helps you to give it. And listen, Jesus has no hidden clauses. He has no tricks. He has no surprise payments, no car sale radio ads where at the end of it you get your 20 seconds of really frenetically fast speech telling you all of the clauses to the deal. He expl- In fact, Jesus explains the cost that he's going to require of you being his disciple up front before you even accept his call to follow him. You know what, friends? There are some who draw a distinction between salvation and discipleship. They teach that there are some who are saved, but even though they're saved, they might never commit themselves to being disciples of Christ. They teach that it's possible to receive Jesus as Lord or as Savior, but not as Lord. But Jesus repeatedly says, you've got to trust him as both Savior and Lord, no one can say to Jesus, I want your salvation, Jesus, but I don't want you to own me. I don't want to be your servant. Nobody can say that to Jesus. Listen, if they're saying that to Jesus, they're saying, I don't want to be saved. Are you hearing that? You cannot say, Jesus, be my savior, but I don't want you to be my Lord because Jesus hears it like this. Then you really don't want to be saved. And you can't say to Jesus, I want your salvation, but I don't want you to own me because a Christian is a disciple who appeals to Christ to be saved and he learns to yield with a willing heart to Christ as his Lord. And every single step of the way, 
is one of God's rich, bountiful grace. And friends, you know this, and though we're going to struggle, we're going to struggle with sin, there will be a gradual growth in holiness, and there will be fruit that we bear. Every genuine believer bears fruit that Jesus himself is growing within you. And what we're about to see, and this is all introduction, what we're about to see is that discipleship is all in for Christ. Now look at your text. We're going to be in Luke chapter 14. We're actually going to handle this in two weeks. We're going to start today with verses 25 and 26, and then we're going to finish the rest of the passage the next time we get together. But I want you to see how it begins. Now look at verse 25 with me. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. Now stop right there for a second. You want to get a little sneak peek inside of a pastor's heart? I could tell you every pastor dreams of that happening. Every pastor dreams of great crowds following them. In fact, that's something that God has to do through his grace to get that idol out of a pastor's life. But every pastor dreams it. You know why they dream it? Because the number one determination of whether you've got a successful church or not in this modern church era is growth. Numbers. This is why megachurch pastors get all the publishers saying, hey, I want to co-write with you so that you can publish a book. This is why megachurch pastors get all of the invitations to conferences. It's not that they hold sole proprietary ownership on the truth of God's word. It's that they're notable. They're known. They got a lot of people following them. So let's exploit that. Let's bring them to a conference to get a lot of people to come. Try doing a conference with a no-name teacher. And you'll find that out pretty quick. But Jesus, he didn't have his ego stroked by large numbers. He wanted committed followers. So he turns to this great crowd and he preaches. This is, by the way, a sermon that Jesus preaches. And we're about to get in on listening to this sermon. He preaches a clear sermon laying out his demands. And here's the first thing we're going to hear. Here it is. You ready? Discipleship requires Jesus to be our greatest priority. You know, occasionally, we're going to jump into this text in a minute, but occasionally, let me tell you this, I get some gentle criticism, sometimes not so gentle, but usually it's gentle, because I don't do a lot of altar calls. Now, you might have wondered that as well, and some of you have talked to me about that. Why don't you do them? I do them rarely. Well, this passage that we're about to study, among others, is one of the reasons that I do them so rarely. Because I cannot imagine, now listen, you got to hear my heart, I cannot imagine Jesus doing an altar call without great pains of explaining what it is exactly that a person's about to commit to. Because he's never done that. If he's going to bring people, if he's going to invite people to be his disciple, to follow him, listen, he goes into great detail. Before you make that decision, you've got to know what it's going to demand of you. You've got to know what it's going to cost you. He never, ever, not once, invited people to come get their ticket to paradise punched and then live the way that they want. 
He promises to save them by his grace and he bids them to come and die to themselves and live for him. Did you hear that? It's how Jesus does altar calls. He promises to save them by his grace and then he bids them to come and die to themselves and live for him. And here we go, verse 26. If anyone comes to me, this is a sermon he's preaching to this great crowd, probably thousands, maybe even over 10,000 people. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now listen, you holding a baby? If you're in that crowd, you're holding a baby, you are shocked. Because Jesus just told you, you got to hate that baby. You taking care of your elderly parent? Well, if you're in that crowd, you're going to be shocked because Jesus said you got to hate that elderly parent. You got to hate your parents. You got to hate your children. Listen, American psychi- psychi- uh, psychiatric specialists tell us you got to love yourself. If you want a good self esteem and a good identity, you got to love yourself. You're not going to find it in the scriptures because Jesus just said you got to hate yourself. This is shocking. Now listen, let me set it up again. You've got probably 10 to 20,000 people following Jesus. They're sensing something. He is just months away from Jerusalem. He's on his way. He's already said, I've got to set my face to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die. They think he's going to defeat Rome. And they want in on the action. So you've got all this great multitude of people and they're excited. There is something in the air. They want to be with Jesus. And he turns to them and says, listen, I know you're following around with me, but if you want to be saved, then you've got to want to be my disciple. And if you want to be my disciple, here's what it's going to cost you. You've got to hate your children, your mother, your father, your wife, your husband, yourself. That's not a very palatable sermon. That's not an easy to hear sermon. But Jesus always lays the demands before he does an altar call. You ever heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? He was a Christian pastor in Germany. He's a theologian, one of the greatest minds in the 20th century. He was hung by the Nazis on April 9th, 1945... He wrote a compelling book called The Cost of Discipleship. Here's one of the things he says. Now, I hope you hear it. Read it on the screen. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Dietrich Bonhoeffer recoiled at the thought of a person saying that they're saved, but that they weren't yielding all to Christ. He said it doesn't compute. That's cheap grace. It cannot happen. But these words of Jesus tell us we've got to hate our families and our own lives. And it seems too much. It sounds too shocking to our ears, especially in this culture that we live in, a family-centered love. I mean, how can God be the God of love, 
telling us to imitate him in, in Ephesians and then tell us to hate our family? How can God, who commanded us to honor our parents, now tell us to hate them? Or how can, how can Jesus, who says if we hate a brother, we are murderers, now tell us to hate them or balance a little baby on his lap and then tell us to hate their children? How does that work? You know what you have to do when you get to a passage like this? It just seems too confusing. Ready? I'm going to ask you to put this in your mind like an anchor and never, ever forget it. Scripture always interprets Scripture. You get to a point where you're not sure what it's saying. God's already answered that somewhere else in the Bible. You just got to search for it. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to take you back now to Genesis 29. How do you hate your parents and be a disciple of Christ? How do you hate your children in your own life? Genesis 29, verse 30. It's on the screen. So Jacob went in to Rachel also. He loved Rachel more than Rachel's sister, Leah. And he served Laban for another seven years. Now let me give you a little context. Jacob falls in love with Rachel. Rachel had an older sister, Leah. Their parent, their father, Laban, said, if you want my, si- my daughter, Rachel, then you've got to work for me for seven years. He does. And then Laban says, well, first of all, you've got to marry her older sister, Leah. Back then, they sometimes had more than one wife, and it never worked well. And so Jacob says, all right, I'll marry Leah. Then I'm going to work for you seven more years. I'm going to marry Rachel. He really loved Rachel, but to get Rachel, he had to marry Leah. So the text says, Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Now you get to the very next verse. Look what it says. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now you see the connection between those two verses? Jacob went into Rachel also because he loved Rachel more. The Lord says in his interpretation then Leah is being hated. So there's something now we're going to explore more about hated, meaning to love less. You getting that? Now, this is absolutely critical. If you're going to understand what Jesus is saying, we're already getting a glimpse. To hate your parents means to love them less. But let's go on a little bit more. The word is used in the same way, Romans 9, 13. Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. It doesn't mean that God had some vitriolic passion of displeasure with Esau. That's not what it was. It's that he loved Esau less than he loved Jacob. And that sounds jarring, but that's God himself saying it. And it's... This is not new to the Old Testament. For even all the way back again to Genesis, you get that picture of Abraham where God takes Abraham. Remember, Abraham was an old man and they only had one child and it was Abraham or it was Isaac. And they waited a long time for Isaac. And then God says to him, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. By the way, when God repeats something, he's exposing a problem. See, Abraham loved Isaac so much that it started to be in jeopardy of his love for God. So take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, that's Jerusalem, that's right where the temple was built, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And But yet God stops Abraham's hand as the knife was coming down to his son, or likely across of his throat. 
And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, love God. God's your priority. I am your greatest priority. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. This is what God's saying. Now I know that you love me, that you adore me above all else, that you will obey me completely, that nothing is loved more than me, not even your son. So we're learning. If I were you, I'd put this in your margin of your Bible in Luke chapter 14. So we're learning that hate here, the word hate in Luke 14 is not the emotional anger of despising someone. It can be used that way, but not in this context. The Greek word means to love less, to hold to a lesser priority. In fact, if you're even confused, you just simply go to Matthew 10 where Matthew captures the same sermon from Jesus, except he puts it in a positive spin. And he writes this, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So here's Jesus speaking to these thousands of people who want to be in on the action, want the glory, but don't want the suffering. He says, if you want to be his disciple, then you've got to learn to love him and shift your allegiance to him above anything or anyone else. So let's take a little time out. The word of God has got to work in our hearts, friends. It's got to change us. And sometimes it slams us up against the wall and it shines the light like an x-ray machine in a Reveals what's really in our hearts. Do you have anybody or anything that you love more than God? Do you love yourself more than Jesus? If he asked you to lay your life down for him, would you do it? If he asked you to change careers for his glory, would you do it? If he asked you to let go of your possessions for his purposes, would you do it? If you cannot say yes, then you love things or people more than him. And he says, you cannot be my disciple. Now this gets a little scary. When you said yes to Jesus... And you pleaded with him to save you from your own sins. You didn't pop out of that spiritual womb a fully mature Christian. Amen? And neither did I. We are growing bit by bit, day by day. It's the grace that saved us is the grace that's perfecting us. But if you're not moving, and if I'm not moving... To give more of our allegiance to where it could be total allegiance to Christ. More of our priority to Jesus. More of our love to Jesus than our than anybody else, including ourselves. If we're not moving in that direction, then you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ. You might have prayed a prayer. You might have gone to church. You might have done a lot of good things, but you've not been changed because the very engine inside you that pulses by the power of the Holy Spirit is moving you and moving me to give everything to Christ because that is his demand.
The grace that saved us will teach us. Now listen. But we must have hearts of willing obedience to, a whole, to His holiness. We must become so enamored, so enthralled by Jesus Christ that all the other loves in our lives seem as hate in comparison. You know what? I began to learn this in 1998. Because in 1998, in November, my father died. And a very, very bizarre, shockingly traumatic thing happened to my entire family. See, my Aunt Winnie, that would be my dad's sister, when she died, they took her photo albums and they put them in the bottom of their closet, my mom and dad did, and none of us kids had ever even seen them. But when he died, we were going through all of his possessions, my mom was, and we saw all these photo albums. So our family, all of our, all of my siblings but one brother, were all gathered around with our spouses, and we're looking through these photo albums that we had never seen before, and we see this picture of my father in a suit and tie with his arm around a woman in a wedding dress that was not our mom. So my sister Debbie goes back to my mom who was working in the closets cleaning out my father's stuff and we learned the story. You see, my father had come back from World War II where he was a a military police officer, fell in love with this woman and married her. And none of us ever knew this. But neither of them were believers. Neither of them had put their faith in Jesus and my father goes to Syracuse, New York, to a Billy Graham crusade. And the message of the gospel through Dr. Graham saves my father, leads him to Christ, pleading for Christ to take his sins away and pledging his life to follow him. It's discipleship language. Comes home to his wife and explains what had happened to him and she says to him angrily, I want nothing to do with your God. You're either choosing him or me. Now he's at a crisis of faith. They hadn't been married very long. What is he going to do? He chooses God. He says to her, I've got to choose God. And she says, then you've not chosen me and we're going to divorce. They filed for disillusionment. Never knew that story till the day my dad died. The day that we buried him. See, there is a cost to discipleship. And sometimes, now listen, sometimes that cost is incredibly painful with loss. But Christ must reign. He must be our Savior and our Lord. He will not settle for half. Again, Bonhoeffer wrote these words. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, can you look at me for a moment? Because most of you would say that you have put your faith in Jesus. Now listen, look at me. Did you hear Jesus tell you that? Because he was telling you that. I'm not just going to give you salvation. I'm telling you, I'm going to demand everything. And you've got to give it. 
He bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out, go out into the world. But it is the same death, Bonhoeffer says, every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man, that old creation, that old sinner, when he calls you. He makes us a new creation, and that new creation is a servant to our Lord and Master. See, Christ will not allow someone to come to him for salvation without giving him their lives. It's an all-in decision. No one can come to Christ for salvation but be unwilling, now listen, unwilling to stop their addiction. They may struggle at it. They may fail, they may succeed, but they cannot be unwilling or they have not yet come to Christ or unwilling to let go of a homosexual relationship or unwilling to stop working as an abortion doctor or unwilling to obey him in your life. Listen, if you come to Christ, you're saying, you've got it all, Jesus. I will do what you want and by your grace to save me, you will teach me to do that. This was the reason, listen, this is the reason that the rich young ruler walked away from Christ despondent and rejected because he was not willing to let go and do what the what Jesus his Lord said or Jesus the Lord said. He wanted to be saved, but he didn't want Jesus as his Lord. You've got to shift your loyalties or you cannot be Christ's disciple. And if a person claims to be a believer, but they're not growing in maturity, they're not becoming more obedient to Christ, then they're self-deceived. Christ is mercifully warning the people that are following him. He's saying words like this from Matthew 7. Listen, this is what Jesus is saying to warn off those who want to be saved yet don't want him as Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You've got to do the will of the Father as evidenced that the grace of salvation has occurred in your life and he's going to teach you to follow him with everything. You want to know why the road is narrow that leads to eternal life and broad that leads to destruction? And the next time you think or the next time somebody says to you, oh, I think there's going to be a lot more people in heaven that you possibly can imagine, you got to go back and say, no, I don't think so, not according to the words of Jesus. Because churches are full of people who think they're going to heaven and they're on their way to destruction. Because they want the they want the Savior, but they don't want the Lord. And Jesus says it comes together. Isn't this kind of Jesus to preach this sermon to these thousands of people and say, "Listen, I know you want glory. I know you want salvation. I know you want healing. I know you want deliverance. And I'll be glad to give it to you. But I'm requiring everything in response. And if you're not willing to give me everything," then I'm not willing to save you. And that jars against what we've been taught. Why don't preachers preach this? Before they invite people to follow Christ. 
Because this is always what Jesus did. Today we get celebrities to share their testimonies and they fill stadiums. And with a band playing the emotions, counselors are prepared to meet those who come forward. They extend the invite. They promise the blessings of forgiveness and eternal life. And with a swell of emotion, hundreds and thousands of sinners come down front and they pray. And it just feels like the right thing to do. Do you want to know what evangelists have found out? This is shocking. Now look, in, look at me for a moment. They've done studies on this. And they have found out that only 10 to 15% of the people that come forward in invitations actually stay with their faith. That's disturbing. Jesus did it the other way around. He explained the cost and then he invited them to follow. Making disciples, friends, is what we're trying to learn to do. It's got to be patterned after our master. Here's how you do it. You explain the grace of salvation to the lost, that Christ has done everything on our behalf. You've got to explain then what he's going to demand of you, that he's going to require all of you, your greatest allegiance, your greatest priority. And then you ask if you want to follow Jesus. And if they say yes, then you help them grow. You help them learn what it means to follow Jesus. You walk with them and you teach them about how to love. You teach them how to have faith. You teach them how to be obedient. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul did. Jesus, we proclaim, he says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? That we might present everyone mature in Christ. Listen, you explain the cost. You explain what Jesus has done. You explain what he's going to require of you. And if they say, yes, I want to know Jesus. I want eternal life. I want to be his disciple. Then you'll walk with them to present them mature. And you let go of the idea that, that the Christian life of discipleship is something passive, something that is just done to you. Let go and let God. That's not biblical. Paul tells us, run the race, stop shadow boxing, fight against the flesh, give it real punches, memorize the scripture, meditate on the truths of God, hate your flesh, abhor your flesh, strip it off of you, put on righteousness every single day. This is active, this is critical, this is hard work, and it all happens because the grace of Jesus Christ. I love George Whitfield. George Whitfield is one of the greatest preachers that crossed the great pond from England back to America. He preached this one time, press forward, do not stop, do not linger in your journey, but strive for the mark set before you fight the good fight and God will give you spiritual mercies. He's not saying that you can earn your salvation. He's speaking to Christians. He's saying, listen, if you're saying that you're in Christ, that you're a disciple of his, then you've got to get fighting. You've got to get maturing. You've got to get making disciples. And if you're not doing that, you give no evidence that you're a disciple. Because Jesus has to be our greatest priority. And it always begins with prayer. You ever notice that? Always begins with prayer, usually desperate prayer. It's to pray like Whitfield again says, Lord, help me to begin to begin. 
Lord, work in me to have a singular desire for you. And where do we begin to love Christ more than anyone or anything else? Well, listen, I could tell you what moralistic preaching would tell you. Here's my question. How do you learn to love God more than anything or anybody? Well, here's what a moralistic preacher is going to do. They're going to give you all of the verses and the, the tonnage of weight of the scriptures, plop it down on your shoulders and say, you got to get out there and start loving them more. Listen, that's not the gospel. Mercifully, that's not how God works. The way that God works, the way the gospel works is saying, hey, I'm going to come inside your heart with my word and I'm going to change your desires so that what I want you to do is going to be what you want to do. Because telling you what to do if you don't want it is legalism. That's moralistic preaching. Jesus said, I got a better way. I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to transform your heart. I'm going to let the word of God come into your mind. And that mind is going to change the way that you love, the way that you live, what you beat for. And when you want what God wants, you're going to do it. And it's not going to be very hard. In fact, Jesus says, you could take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you're going to find rest for your souls. Why? Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen, if you're in a marriage where you don't really love your spouse, your counselor telling you, you got to get out and date and love your spouse isn't going to work. It never works. That's not what counsel I give. I say, listen, you got to plead for repentance. you got to begin to begin. you got to cry out, Lord, I'm not loving my wife. I'm not loving my husband when you've commanded me to. And I can't do it in my flesh. I need you, need you to pour in your love, Romans 5, 5, so that it overflows from my heart. So that when I go to love my spouse, it's not going to be hard. It's going to be natural. It's going to be what I want. Because that's what you're doing in my heart. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And all of a sudden, we're back to the meaning of the word disciple. A disciple is a learner, a perpetual learner. Jesus says, be my disciple. Just keep learning. Get your Bible open. You want your heart changed? Well, this is it. This is it. Don't sit there in a lotus position and, and watch an oak tree grow, thinking that you're going to love everybody Love God more than everybody else. Listen, get the word of God in your mind. It will come down into your heart. It will change you so that you want what God wants and hate what he hates. And when you start to love what he loves and hate what he hates, you're going to love him more than anyone else. And guess what? When you love Christ more than anyone else, you're going to find that you love everybody else a whole lot more. That's the way it works. You got to walk with me. You gotta abide with me, Jesus is saying. You gotta let your, my word transform your heart. And you will begin to love me more than anything. Corey Ten Boom, man, she was amazing. She survived a Nazi concentration camp. And they did horrible, despicable things to her and her sisters and the other women, totally demeaning. And one guard in particular was especially abusively cruel. Watch what happens at Corrie Ten Boom's life. She gets out of that concentration camp. Germany lost the war. She was freed. 
And after she recovered, she started going literally around the world speaking of her experience, speaking of God's grace and mercies to endure her through that. And she's speaking back in Germany of all places. And while she's speaking, she's declaring what Jesus Christ has done. And afterwards, this German man comes walking up to her and says to her these words, Fraulein, if you can forgive me, then I'll know what you say is true, that God forgives me. And when she saw his face, she was gripped with fear because it was the abusive guard who was worse than anybody else. He had his hand out. He said, can you forgive me? As if it went on for an eternity, she's battling in her heart. She's going, no, I cannot turn my back on what that man did to my sister and myself. I cannot love him. I cannot forgive him. Her arms were frozen at her side while the man just remained outstretched before her. And as he stared at her, now listen, you got to hear this. As he stared at her, Corey Ten Boom prayed for strength. She could not find in herself and giving her will over to God. Unable to change it on her own coldly. She stuck out her hand and clasped the palm of her former enemy. And she writes this, quote, in that moment, something miraculous happened. A current seemed to pass from me to him while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. It's what it looks like, Luke 14, 25, 26. She prayed, God, I cannot love this man. Yet she obeyed. And the moment that she obeyed, the power of God flooded her heart and brought into her heart a real and genuine love for this abusive guard through which she forgave him. And he became a Christian. Friends, are you saved? Then you are a disciple of Christ. And he is demanding everything. And he requires that you learn to love him more than anyone or anything else, including yourself. And if that is not you, listen to me carefully. I am almost done. If that is not you, then your very first step is to fall before your Savior and Lord and repent. And plead that he will pour his heart into yours as you abide with him and become his disciple. Amen? That's the cost of discipleship. And we'll see the rest of it the next time we look at this passage. Let's pray.